people don't wear neck pillows all the time. I don't know why this is not an acceptable <laughs> part of fashion. Like, I mean, you're allowed to wear a neck brace if maybe, you got maybe injured. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Because our, our, John, I don't know if you know this. People look at their phones far too often, mm. and they get this this condition that uh, is colloquially called text neck. What? Text yeah, neck. so they, they lean forward. Yeah, they stoop. Oh, jeez. The kids these days with their Fortnites exactly. and their marshmallows <laughs> and their DJs. So it's possible that, yeah, neck, neck pillows come not only in necessity but in vogue. It's like how in China and Japan, uh, facial or surgical masks are now coming, not just becoming a necessity to deal with air pollution, but also a fashion statement. Mm. I have noticed that, uh, am, I, am I speaking out of turn if I mention the fact that Asians seem much more comfortable with it and probably much more forward thinking. I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. <laughs> when you just never have a subject, and you specifically should never <laughs> utter a sentence with the subject being Asians. Okay, sorry. Asia is a giant con- is a giant continent with many complex cultures and peoples, and you are going to generalize and be it and stick your whole foot in your whole damn mouth. I'm so sorry. I'm, stop I'm sorry. I'm just saying. But proceed, proceed, but proceed with being an idiot. Okay. If you, if you must. It's if I'm in a large crowd. Or in a large yeah. gathering space, such as an airport, the uh-huh. only people you see wearing surgical masks tend to be Asian. I told you, John. I literally just told you that it's a fa- that it's also a necessity and a fashion statement. Okay, okay. And also, presumably, if they're flying from Asia, that's at least a ten-hour flight with circulating germ-filled air. But it's not so, just—it's not just the airport. I'm just saying, I see it happen in in you know random places. That's that's all I'm saying. There's no judgment here. There's no judgment. Of course there's judgment. And I just gave you a logical explanation of why you see it happen. Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. It's just, ugh, the PC police jumping down my throat. (laughs) (laughs) What happened to freedom? (laughs) What happened to being able to say whatever I want? What happened to being able to carry around my gun and shoot black people without repercussions? (laughs) Sorry, sorry. I just had to go dark. Exactly. Yeah, we have to go dark. Um, this is the world we we live in now. Mm. I, John, should we talk about the wonderful uh, dictatorial celebration we had <laughs> on July Fourth? I actively tried to ignore it because a I, I sequestered myself Fourth of July. I'm like, no, I'm not doing anything today. I've just I've been yeah. having too much. I just need the day off to decompress. I am literally not going to look at the news. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to lay around. And so I don't know. I heard he had tanks. I heard he had flyovers. I heard people are saying it was the biggest 4th of July celebration there's ever been. <laughs> so I don't know. You tell me. How did it go? <laughs> well, that's a th- I was going to actually avoid it as well. Mm-hmm. However, my eye wandered to Twitter. And I would, I would only tune in if there was any opportunity for Scheidenfreude. And oh boy, was there. <laughs> I mean, <It> poured... <laughs> the grading curve for anything Donald Trump does is if he doesn't end up yeah. throwing up on his own shoes, it's like A+. Plus. <laughs> yeah. That seemed to be the case here because there was torrential downpours all day. Mm-hmm. The tanks, the fabled tanks that apparently would be rolling through the city did not move because <laughs> they would, apparently our infrastructure is so bad they couldn't handle tanks actually rolling through the city. That can't be true. We already had infrastructure week a few times. How is that I, possible? But John, the Democrats keep obstructing oh, it. That's why. Damn it. <laughs> Those lousy Democrats. I know. With they their, don't want to get anything done. <laughs> with their non-government spending? Where am I? <laughs> exactly. And then culminating in just a fantastic uh, Wikipedia source <laughs> speech on the history of America in which Donald Trump is inside a glass wet cube. <laughs> okay, good to know. So he's the Pope now. He needs to be yes. protected in a glass cube. Okay, good to know. I didn't even see I'm that. I'm sure that's the intention. Yeah, All right. but... 
and, I, and I'm sure his followers were like, yes, I believe that he is he is elect, he is special, he is chosen by God, and and yes, he deserves to be uh, separated from us either by a plastic bulletproof sheet or chain link fence, which, which literally ran through the reflecting pool. <laughs> no, dear. Oh, no. <laughs> so that was another hysterical image. So... I know a lot of people were like, were like, oh my gosh, this is going to be like Tiananmen Square or a celebration in, in, in North Korea or some other terrible dictatorial nightmare. Mm-hmm. But it turns out this administration is way too incompetent <laughs> to pull that off. <laughs> and the other thing I want to point out, Americans way too complacent. That is absolutely true. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no way, yeah, there's no way you could have cajoled all the MAGA hooting yahoos who did gather to celebrate into doing anything coordinated. Mm-hmm. They would just be like, yeah, they other than maybe going a, a, a synchronized woo, <laughs> there's no way that they could organize, they could pretty much do anything in any kind of orderly way. Mm. I mean, again, someone made the point, we've got kids literally in concentration camps dying, and people are like, oh, when will they do something about it? And then we go back to checking Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, it's a sad indictment of our times. And thankfully, we're participating in it too, Greg. Look at us. Yeah. And our, yes, a sad indictment of our country and ourselves. Let's start. We're, just we're terrible no better. We're no better. <laughs> we're no better. This is great. I feel good about myself. It's like that uh, tweet that I particularly love. All the centrists come together holding hands saying, better things aren't possible. <laughs> Uh, I love that we read our favorite tweets segment of the podcast. Yes. We should probably mention this is a movie podcast. Indeed, it is where we rewatch or not rewatch, but experience movies for the very first time that are now generally considered in classical cinema canon, mm-hmm. and evaluate whether they are in fact classics or whether their quality holds up over time. Exactly, and sometimes we end up doing, you know, stuff that's lauded by the critics' circles or stuff that's appreciated as fine art, and then sometimes we find stuff that's a little more on the culty side of things. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Maybe movies that we missed in college <laughs> that adorn <laughs> college dorm walls with posters and <laughs> such, such such things. What what have we watched before? Uh, oh shoot! Now, <laughs> sorry, we've we've done 140 disease. iTunes, fix your fix your number. I think <laughs> okay. this is our 140th episode, and we, we've done some cult classics, but none maybe as big as this one. No, absolutely not. I'd say the closest thing we probably did is Clerks to this, but uh, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> But yes, for the first time, we both watched the Richard Kelly debut film, Donnie Darko. Excuse me. Donnie, you're such a dick. (laughs) Whoa, Elizabeth. A little hostile there. Maybe you should be the one in therapy, then mom and dad can pay someone $200 an hour to listen to all your thoughts, so we don't have to. Okay. Do you want to tell mom and dad why you stopped taking your medication? You're such a fuck ass. What? Please. Did you just call me a fuck ass? Elizabeth, that's enough. You can go suck a fuck. Oh, please tell me, Elizabeth. How exactly does one suck a fuck? <laughs> you want me to tell you? Please tell me. We will not have this at the dinner table. Stop. Donald Darko. <laughs> Donald Darko. I was confused when they referred to him as Donald Darko at one point. I was like, these idiots, yeah. they don't even know his real... Oh, wait, Donnie's short for Darko. Donald. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Took yeah. me a moment. Co-starring, co-starring uh, Margaret Gyllenhaal and... <laughs> 
Jacob. The soundtrack does not feature songs by Leonard Kravitz, but it's a <laughs> Jacob Gyllenhaal. Don't forget Jacob Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Yes, this wasn't true. his first film, but I think this was his breakout film, correct? Maybe not break. Yes, this and October Sky, which was much more mainstream. So he has this cult appeal with Donnie Darko and then mainstream appeal with uh, October Sky, which is a far more conventional and a popular movie. Yeah. that's. Uh... But he was a child actor, same with uh, his sister Margaret. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I'm just going to call her Margaret from now on. <laughs> okay. It's funny. <laughs> Until I drive, until I drive it into the ground like a like a pile driver, but um, like a jackhammer. But th- th- for all intents and purposes, this was, as you said, the debut of a young up and comer named Richard Kelly, like fresh out of USC film school, mm-hmm. had a prodigious talent. And what he said is like, I'm going to take every film and just smash them into one. <laughs> <laughs> no, Greg, that was Southland Tales. This is much more coherent. Uh... <laughs> Well, we'll talk about Southland Tales, I think, later. Okay. Maybe at a later date <laughs> for, for another episode. We should devote a whole episode to Southland Tales. Oh, another but, classic. <laughs> yeah. I think what what really drives this movie's cult appeal is, is first, it's somewhat languid pacing. I, I guess you could generously term it a psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. But what it is is a John Hughes movie mashed up with a David Lynch movie <laughs> uh, combined with a lot of, of philosophical of sci-fi concepts into, mm. into one movie. And it all centers around this this dark, broody kid named Donnie Darko. Exactly. And I, I was getting a lot of touches of satire going on. There's a lot of like American Beauty feeling to it. I also got a lot of Heathers with like the yeah. high school drama and all the high school students are very... Uh, widely or broadly drawn, they're all like, "Oh, there's the jock, there's the bully, there's the fat yeah. kid," you know. But yeah, when I said a John Hughes movie, I should have included dark comedy with there as well, mm-hmm. with it in that as well. Yeah, exactly. But you're right. Then it also becomes uh, a psychological thriller, and then also a time travel movie. Uh, so it's kind of a bit all over the place, and. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, I do want to applaud them because I I like it when a movie tries to do more instead of less. But also, it's like they get bit off more than you can chew, and uh, you're trying to cash thematic checks that your that you, <laughs> your your bank account just doesn't withhold. So exactly, the movie somewhat feels like a house of cards, and for long stretches, I was really impressed by the balance of tone and a lot of little filmmaking tricks, like uh, say long takes for an ooh, ooh long takes, uh, yes. speeding up and slowing down the film stock, and and a lot of like compelling visuals that he puts together, combined with uh, well-drawn characters. Like you said, we, we deal with kind of stock high school characters, however they are, they do each have a little narrative thrust. Mm-hmm. Or, or something that makes them unique and memorable. That said, kind of as we veer towards the end and, and also veer towards like like explaining these ideas, namely that we need to rely on pages flipping in a book to <laughs> explain these concepts to us, that's, what, that's when the House of Cards kind of teeters. And then there's a scene prior to the climax that all kind of falls apart for me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, I don't that's, know if we should we'll jump ahead to the climax, you know, this quickly. <laughs> but... Yeah, John, that's a great idea. How about we set it up a little bit first? <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> I don't know how you want to do this. We this is all this is all fresh off the dome, bro. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Donnie is. We're introduced to him. He is a not exactly a well-adjusted kid. He's obviously no. dealing with uh, psychological issues. Uh, we know he's not taking his medicine, but he is seeing a therapist and talking through his problems with her and this kind of put in contrast with his kind of i wouldn't say stuck up but very conventional family life which is why it's all the more surprising that it's like why is he the problem child everyone else is doing happy everyone else is doing fine 
Well, this is also set up against, yeah, as you said, uh, an annoying older sister, a precocious younger sister, who should also, <laughs> when I when I say types, like they are they are well defined. I did like the bumbling, uh, aloof dad, mm-hmm. and also the at least understanding or forgiving mom. Mm-hmm. Like again, she tries, and they have some good banter back and forth. But this is also set in the year 1988 with the backdrop of the Dukakis Reagan election. Oh yes, and the 80s yeah. soundtrack. Oh, the soundtrack. <laughs> And I'd say that's maybe where some of the dark comedy comes from, because there's a lot of touches. Again, Donnie Darko's a high school student, so there's a lot of touches of not quite satanic panic, but also like uh, fear and doting over your kids and and a, and a conservative PTA. Like, how dare they read the Scream Green book? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. There's also Patrick Swayze in this movie, and he's playing some kind of uh, televangelist of some sort. He's not quite Christian, but he does like propose these strong, upstanding morals and... The the movie kind of feels nebulous about it. And again, going back to like the whole satire thing and how broadly things are drawn, he didn't seem too far out of place for the movie. But it, I think the problem is one of the weird things is like I wasn't sure if the movie's on Donnie's side or not. Because on the one hand, he's like he's meant to be like the one real voice of reason at times. Like he's the one who stands up and and shouts down the the evil televangelist. And other times, you know, he's, you know, sticks it to the stuck up man and stuff like that. But also he's like mentally ill. He's very clearly mentally (laughs) ill. So I think that's also probably a contrast or the problem with the tone of the movie is like, on the one hand, we're supposed to be on Donnie Darko's side. Like we're supposed to sympathize with him, but also he's kind of a monster. Spoiler alert, he ends up killing people. So like, again, like sometimes you can kind of pull that balance you can have kind of an anti-hero or kind of a, a a conflicted hero but i don't think this movie quite pulls that off are you telling us this stuff so we can buy your book because i gotta tell you if you are that was some of the worst advice i ever heard oh. you see how sad this is i want your sister to lose weight tell her to get off the couch stop eating twinkies and maybe go out for field hockey you know what no one ever knows what they want to be when they grow up you know it takes a little little while to find that out right jim and you yeah, you. You think you're some jerk shoving your head down the toilet. Well, you know what? Maybe you should lift some weights or uh, take a karate lesson, and the next time he tries to do it, you kick him in the balls. <laughs> Son, do you see this? Right? This is an anger prisoner, a textbook exam. prisoner. Do you see the fear of people? This boy is scared to death of the truth. Son, it breaks my heart to say this. But I believe you are a very troubled and confused young man. I believe you are searching for the answers in all the wrong places. You're right, actually. I am pretty, I'm, I'm pretty troubled and I'm, I'm pretty confused, but I, and I'm afraid, really, really afraid. Really afraid, but I, I, I think you're fucking antichrist. The idea is anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Because there are some allusions to comic books, and and basically Donnie has a superpower. We'll talk all about influences later, but mm-hmm. it's it, it's kind of like a if you could if you want to summarize this movie in one log line, it's like a dark Harvey the Rabbit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Donnie sees visions of this man in a grim rabbit suit. His name is Frank, mm-hmm. and basically he tells him to do bad things, but the bad things have like good consequences. For instance, the, the first one. And again, there's only about three, and it stretches all across this two-plus-hour-long movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first is to break a water main in the school so that it floods. But it, you know, postpones a few things and and sticks it to the stuck-up gym teacher named Miss Farmer. Mm -hmm. 
and again, it's seen it's seen as a good good form of rebellion, particularly in the light of the the book that he's teaching in English, which later gets banned. Mm-hmm. The next one is to set fire to, as you said, the televangelist played by Patrick Swayze. Not sorry, not televangelist, self help self help guru. Yeah. How about that? Okay, that's yeah, that's a better term for what he is. Who's who's derided for also being very simplistic like it's only two things fear and love and get to the love and forget the <laughs> yes. and cast out the fear very didactic uh, yeah. uh, belief system and oversimplified uh, he's called by Frank to burn down his house but in that arson it reveals oh my gosh he had a big cache of child pornography no so it's like oh he he's he's a hero in terms that he saved the the kidnapped the potentially kidnapped children because this is the 80s remember yeah so. exactly um, and then going back to this whole idea that he's like he's being forced to do these things by Frank. Well, then we get into time travel, and then we open up a whole can yeah. of worms about determinism. There's he's he's interested in this book uh, written by this former teacher who used to teach at his school, but eventually it kind of drove her crazy, and it's revealed that the crazy demented lady who checks the mailbox for no mail turns out she was the writer of the book, and. He, he suddenly gets obsessed with figuring out time travel. Like, he feels like he was meant, like, again, like a mentally ill person. He sees connections that aren't there, and he thinks he's meant to, you know, explore time travel and whatnot. And then there's this scene where everyone has, like, a kind of line drawing out of them, and it turns into, like, goop. Like, the air kind of gets yeah. waved, and basically what it does is it traces what their motions are going to be. Yeah. And again, like going back to that whole time travel thing, it's kind of like, oh, we're on set determined paths. Like time can only move forward. We can only move one way. So thematically, I think this movie has some good ideas. It's playing with the idea of, you know, uh, Donnie Darko is obviously mentally ill. Well, why? Because he can't deal with the stresses of not being in control. Or at least that's how his doctor prescribes him. And again, that's why he's so fascinated with time travel. He wants to be in control. He wants to have control over the fundamental forces of nature, which are obviously, he feels determined where he's eventually going to end up. Mm-hmm. Now, again, theming, thematic underpinnings are the table settings. Plot is the actual food. And so if you're not <laughs> serving good food, though, you know, the thematic underpinnings go to waste. So I think given where the plot goes... And just the way the movie's kind of staged, I don't think it quite accomplishes what it was set out to, what it's set out to do. Okay, so you like the nutritional aspect of the movie, perhaps. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like I think there was yeah. I think there was a good concept here. But again, like, oh, it's a satire of like eighties teen comedies. Also it's like a psychological thriller. I wouldn't say yeah, I wouldn't say a satire of 80s teen comedies. It, it feels like he wanted to bring together everything that he loved about popular culture. Okay. And I think he he somewhat achieves that. Like, like I think the most obvious influence here is David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with the, with the tone and pacing, it's very it's very much like David Lynch, but there's also, as you said, the, or, or, as I mentioned earlier, the John Hughes aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. And I think he's, he's very successful of that. But you're right. It, it has to kind of come together. In a way, and and for the first two thirds, I'd argue that it really does, mm-hmm. and it's not until like say it's it's sort of like the filmmaker that brings it down because yeah, that's an interesting concept that you have like the waves kind of bringing bring uh like revealing your your fate or at least your path in life, mm-hmm. and it obviously leads to a Chekhov's gun situation, which as you said uh, leads Don which Donnie uses later uses as a murder weapon mm-hmm. the the problem is this is an independent film made for less than five million dollars <laughs> and yeah you know, 20 years later it's it's distracting how like 
it looks like straight out of Toy Story or something <laughs> like that. It just doesn't. It does kind of have an amateur feel, but again, like yeah. amateur feel can kind of give it a, a certain kind of charm, which I don't think this yeah. movie quite has. Um, also, for five million dollars, like you can make a much better movie than this. Come on, you got Drew Barrymore backing you. Come on. Take it off. Why they call you Frank? It is the name of my father. Let's talk about like casting. I think the other. A big selling point for this movie is how well it's cast. Not not just as Jake and, and Margaret Gyllenhaal as brother and sister, mm-hmm. but also like all the par- parental roles. Like I loved how the cast Miss Farmer, how like doting she is. Mm-hmm. Um, the the parents are great. As I said, they have this great banter where, um, again, it's not played histrionically. The mother wants to punish uh, Donnie for staying out late, and and what is what, what does he actually what does he actually do? I can't remember. Uh, staying out, he just wanders into the golf course and falls asleep. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, he uh, tells the teacher to sh- shove something up her ass. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, and he, yeah, that's what that's what I'm alluding to. Yeah. Um, and he says he thinks he should be fun- punished. The father like sarcastically quips, like, "I think he should be rewarded. You know, to mm-hmm. stick it to that stuck-up teacher." Yeah. And she says, "I think we should get a divorce." Mm-hmm. But they're obviously like joking. Like it's it's kind of like fun, dark humor there. Exactly. I mean, it's the and, same thing when Donnie calls her a bitch. Calls his mom yeah. a bitch, and she walks in. And it's like your son just called me a bitch. He's like, "Well, you're bitch in, but you're no bitch." You know, they yeah. they have fun. They have a good, strong kind of relationship. Again, which is why it's so unexpected that why is Donnie so mentally ill? That whole thing yeah. of like, well, he comes from good a good stock. He comes from a good family. <laughs> he comes from the <laughs> suburbs. Oh, think of the children. I, I I keep pushing. I want to push back on this notion that he's like mentally ill. Mm. I think people want to identify with Donnie Darko and his dark, burning nature. I don't think that necessarily portends mental illness. Mm. I think it's, as you said, it's it's a desire for control in his life because Donnie makes a, a big decision at the end. He knows he he also gets a vision from Frank that the world is going to end mm-hmm. in the 30 days on Halloween night. And because of the time travel and, this, and the whole nature of the movie is that it resets and what earlier kind of kicks off the movies this life-threatening event donnie i guess decides to sacrifice himself <laughs> so that um his, his mother and sister don't die in a plane crash or so that uh his girlfriend at the time doesn't get run over by a car or that he doesn't live with the consequence of say this arson or this uh, flooding or mm-hmm. later murder so i think i think it's that also desire to control or to feel like uh, my self-sacrificing actions are virtuous or yeah. i have an effect on things got it so I don't think I don't think it's mental illness, but it's using your your knowledge and your and your rebelliousness um, for <laughs> virtue for good. Oh, okay. And I think that's that's why character that's why people most identify with the character of Donnie Darko because he actually not only does he get to explore all these great theoretical ideas, well, well you take a well you take another rip on your bond, <laughs> but 
that he also uses it, uses his power virtuously. I suppose, yeah. yeah. But again, like, let's get back to how is that actually accomplished on film? He, you know, all the, his life has fallen apart. His girlfriend is dead. His mom and sister yeah. have crashed in a plane, and he realizes, oh, I need to change things. Like now, he has the actual imperative to do time travel. How does that play yeah. out in the movie? It might as well be a title card that says Poochie died on his way home, way home <laughs> <laughs> to his home planet. Like it's literally like we get literally thirty seconds of like events happening differently. And Donnie dying, you know, in very obtuse terms. Yeah. And the girlfriend riding a bike on a bike is like, I wonder who lived there. And this whole idea. I've heard jokingly people refer to this movie as like, it's a wonderful life, but in reverse. It's like the ultimate moral of the lesson is like, life would have been better without Donnie Darko, which is really not a good, healthy message no. for a suicidal teen. But no. I don't think that's fair, but also, yes, the movie kind of falls apart at the climax because it just can't, like, if you're going to do a time travel movie, make it like Back to the Future, have him relive these things, but play it out differently. But it just kind of glosses over that, it completely skips over that, and it's like, oh yeah, everything was fixed. Yeah, it's, if a movie's like a puzzle, or like a mystery box or something, like, it's, this movie isn't a puzzle, it's more like the, when the mystery box is finally open, it's just like, oh, he, he got to go back and do it over again. Yeah, exactly. In, in the worst way possible. But it has, I think it has aspirations to be that puzzle box, because again, we get the revelation of the nature of Frank. Frank actually yeah. was a kid dressed as a bunny on Halloween night who accidentally hits his girlfriend, and in a fit of rage, he kills him, shoots him through the eye. And so, you know, the, like, now it all makes sense, the big reveal of when Frank takes off his mask and his eye is blown out, like, oh my gosh, you planned that from the beginning, Richard Kelly, you're a genius, slurp, slurp. <laughs> and I, like, not to, not to throw 90s audiences under the bus, but I feel like if you were a screenwriter who could come up with a, a nice hook and just, like, oh, wrap it around itself, like, remember that movie 1114? Like, if you could wrap a story in and of itself, oh, yeah. like, perfectly, like, everyone's like, ooh! <laughs> and they start clapping like harbor seals. <laughs> yes, it, it was Pulp Fiction was the yes. was the daddy, the progenitor of like a kind of wrapping narrative uh, in a knot. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in a in a not. This is in a literal time travel way, but uh, more more in a way where non sequentially the story kind of, yeah consequentially the story comes full circle in a way. Mm -hmm. Now that said. You're right. The the center does not hold. However, he does pull a very good magic trick, which I think also kind of draws people's attention away from how the narrative falls apart. But it does give kind of an emotional climax to everything. And there is this montage set over the cover version of Tears for Fears' Mad World, mm -hmm. in which all our major characters are just seen like crying or like facing the the consequences that are that are going to come up later in the movie because it's the night of October 2nd instead of, say, Halloween night. Mm -hmm. So we see, like, uh, Patrick Swayze's character presumably sad about his addiction to child pornography or something. Uh, we see Drew Barrymore's character... She was a big producer of this movie. I don't know why she took such a nothing role. It's just like a like a rebellious teacher. Like, yeah, I'm gonna. I teach mean, a it's banned book. I mean, it's kind of a smart role, I guess. It's one of the least showy, but it's also like the most morally upstanding one, I suppose. And yeah. I think it also she was still trying to get out from under the whole teen or the kid actor idea. So I think this is a very mature role for her to take at that time in her career. Probably that's what I'm assuming. I don't know. I'm maybe I'm reading too much into it. 
Yeah, and with the casting of Patrick Swayze, it's it's another allusion to the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> this movie drew two audiences: college students who were really into the heady ideas, but also new Gen Xers and baby boomers who reached about thirty were nostalgic for the eighties, but yeah. now had the disposable income to spend on special edition DVDs. There you and, go. You know what movie's yeah. also awesome? Dazed and Confused. Oh man, <laughs> remember that movie? That was a movie, man. <laughs> I'm dying are the best I've ever had. I find it hard to tell you. I find it hard to take. The people run in circles. It's a very, very mad world. Mad world. So, I I did think it was it was good filmmaking in that final stretch. However, you're right. Like as a whole, it doesn't quite come together. Mm-hmm. That said, I was actually really compelled for those that great mixture of tone, and it really sold me on Richard Kelly the filmmaker until uh the success of dvd sales maybe went to his head okay (laughs) yeah i think i i don't dispute richard kelly's talents i don't think he should write his own movies i think uh oh that's i think his i think his skills lie in a director uh when he puts pen to paper ooh, back off buddy (laughs) get the straight jackets out okay well we're gonna have to explore Look through his filmography and see. Oh, I'm looking forward exactly to revisiting the in box. The, yeah, remember the box. <laughs> Don't push the button. Didn't he write the box as well? Oh, probably. It's based on a yeah. It's on based a on a Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone or yeah. a Matheson story. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Actually... And so it ends up it ends up being Martians, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah, as the original writer intended. Yeah. What do I have to spell it out for you, people? <laughs> I have actually started getting into watching uh, the Twilight Zone on Netflix. It's pretty good. Hot take, guys. (laughs) Twilight Zone. (laughs) Pretty good TV. (laughs) I mean, there's something refreshing about it in this day and age where it's like everything is serialized and everything is like produced within an inch of his life. It's just kind of like, oh, a weird episode where we're stuck in the desert. But was it real? You know. (laughs) I I think I'm I'm put off by the amount of influence it had. Mm-hmm. And I've I've seen it kind of so twisted and perverted. First by the, the writers of The Simpsons. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you pretty much you've <laughs> seen every all... <laughs> Treehouse of Horror. Yeah, is is just a read a redois of old Twilight Zone episodes. Mm-hmm. But then also by by Black Mirror. Yeah, that's true as well. <laughs> Which is like, uh, what if technology were like here, but it was bad? <laughs> <laughs> what if technology, but more of it? Yeah. <laughs> I may, and the other thing too is I'm an idiot deep deep down and I'm just a yeah. sucker for oh, well deep deep down shut down. up <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just a sucker for like we could be in just the most simple uh, easy uh, pastoral setting and then the camera pans over and there's Roger Sterling with a cigarette you're now entering a dimension of time and space just so out of place and I'm just like because <laughs> you know shit's about to get fucked <laughs> yeah I think you said 
what did you say Roger Sterling? I think I dare draw Mad Men. Shoot, you're right. Donald Sterling, the former owner of racist owner of the Clippers. Shit, I think I said Roger Sterling. My bad. It's it's Rod Sterling. Sorry, Rod Sterling. My bad. Sterling. Whatever. (laughs) You know what I meant. I know. Listen to my intentions, not my words. (laughs) Exactly. I didn't mean to burn down the fireworks factory. I just wanted to see my intentions were good. It would have been a spectacular. Think of <laughs> all the pedophiles I would have revealed. I know. I didn't mean for three people to die. <laughs> oh, he wrote Planet of the Apes. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh. The, the man knew how to do a twist. Oh, this guy's good. This guy's good. <laughs> <laughs> You're the first person to ever note that for Rod Serling. <laughs> Hot take, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Under, underrated. I'd, I'm bringing I'd it back. I'm bringing it back. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, nobody shined their light on this Rod Serling character. <laughs> Greg, speaking of shining lights, I think that's a that's a near perfect segue into the way we end every episode, which is a big heaping helping of spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Yes, this is where we recommend a movie or a TV show or whatever the heck we watched this week that uh, we think would uh, just enrich the lives of every listener. Yes, here. would brighten your spirits. Mm-hmm. However few there are, John, you got to go to the theater this week. Yes, I did. I find I caught not finally because <laughs> it just opened. <laughs> I caught Spider Man Far From Home. Uh, finally, I know <laughs> Spider Man on the big screen. Uh, it's like you know, I, I'm so tired of Marvel pulling out their big hitters. When are they going to get to like the really obscure characters that really reward like the comic book fans? You know. It's well, John, because when they do that, they ruin it. Like the Mandarin, <laughs> everybody was braying to see the Mandarin on the big screen, and then they ruined him. Ugh. Okay, so I'll get I'll get to what uh, I'll get to what I liked first. Okay. Um, the performances are all great. They they continue the tone of the uh, first Spider-Man Homecoming, which is like it's a teen comedy wrapped in you know superhero pajamas. So that all works. Yeah. Uh, the- Much lighter compared to the other. Marvel movies. Exactly. And the story actually kind of centers around now that all this event has happened, it follows from uh, Endgame. So, you know, there's this whole complicated, they kind of play, like, they play it off, but, you know, they they do play with the whole idea that it's like, hey, remember you were gone for five years, but now you're back. Half the population's back. Like, for instance, at the beginning, Aunt May is technically homeless because she was blipped and then her house was sold. And when she comes back, like she has no house anymore. So the blip being the Thanos snap. Exactly. Thanos. The Thanos snap. That, they refer <laughs> to it. Yeah. When Thanos, no, Thanos used the infinity goblet. <laughs> Greg loves comic books, guys. Oh, you can't yes, help. Yes, I do. He's the best villain since Dark Vader. <laughs> so yeah, in the movie, they refer to it as a blip and it is, it is not the first time that they kind of come up with a, punchy, lame way of describing something. Uh, an important mm-hmm. uh, plot point is Peter Parker's spider sense, which they refer to as the Peter Tingle in this movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he, I don't want to think about teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's, I think that was intentional. Um, so he, he, he kind of loses it at the, at, the, at the beginning of the movie, and they think mm-hmm. it's kind of an outcropping or it's a symptom of the fact that he feels like he needs to live up to Iron Man. You know, obviously the world's in mourning ever since Iron Man died and nobly sacrificed himself at the end game. So Peter Parker feels like he needs to kind of step up and 
but he wants to be a normal teen. You know, he has this crush on MJ and he wants to tell her how he really feels. And he's trying to do it in like the most cheesy romantic way possible. He wants to like give her this black opal necklace on the top of the Eiffel Tower. They never actually make it to Paris, which I think is kind of a nice touch. <laughs> but <Okay. laughs> um, so, yeah, for the first half, it kind of becomes it's or it's this, you know, teen comedy. It's this very light kind of fair but then in the second half, we're introduced to Mysterio, this new superhero on the block who, talking about replacing Iron Man, like he kind of comes in and he seems like he's going to be the the new perfect superhero for this modern age, kind of put everyone at peace. Yes, and he's played by Margaret Gyllenhaal's brother. <laughs> yes. Who knew that this guy had acting chops? I wish he went a little yeah. bit broader. There's this great uh, character actor in Okja. Like, he really kind of nails it, and I wish <laughs> I wish this guy committed at the same level. <laughs> So anyone who's a fan of the comics knows Mysterio is not as what he seems. Hmm. Wait a minute. <laughs> is this what is is this my beloved Spider-Man villain Mysterio? Cuz he sounds like a good guy so far. Exactly. And obviously there's going to be no twists and turns. This is a very even-keeled story, okay? You're on a roller coaster and you know exactly where everything's going. Um actually and that's the best part of the movie is when Mysterio finally kind of gets to let loose. Uh spoiler alert, Mysterio creates illusions. And so when he really kind of lets his powers loose, it becomes almost Doctor Strange-esque. Like, Spider-Man can't trust what he's looking at, and he plays with the environments, and he, like, falls and hits his head because he doesn't really know what he's looking at. And again, going back to the whole thematic resonance of, you know, he can't trust his own emotions, his spider sense isn't working, so he can't, like, navigate these illusions. It's great. All works. All works. Except the other problem is, is all the meta aspect. And the fact that Mysterio creates illusions. And there's a lot of... This is trying to be the movie that takes on fake news. Like, this is... There's oh. this there's this undercurrent <laughs> of, like, you know, you can't trust what you always see and you can't trust what you always hear. People are always... Like, there's so many jokes in this movie. It's like, oh, you found it on the internet. That might, must mean it's true. Or do you always believe what you read in the papers? And I don't really know how much I want to spoil. But, yeah, that becomes, like, a big kind of undercurrent or point in the latter half and again going back to like cashing thematic checks that your account just does not hold it just it doesn't hold up and that's something that's always bothered me about these spider-man movies these ones rely the most on the audience knowing who spider-man is and that always kind of bothered me like for instance marissa tomei was cast as on may and they always make the joke it's like aunt may is hot well they make those jokes yeah. because aunt may is traditionally presented as like a very old infirm woman and so they yeah. cast mr tomei and now they have to joke that she's hot but again like it, it shouldn't matter because you're bringing the audience's expectations into it and i see yeah the same thing with the score the score is the michael cuccino didn't compose that you asshole um <laughs> And then, well, no, but he—he's had experience doing the Star Trek theme. If, yeah, there if, you go. <laughs> if there's anything he's adept at, I mean, he's a brilliant composer. He's probably my favorite composer working today. <laughs> but yeah, like far too often he's got to adapt that's because true. that's what movies do. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. And then again, I'm trying not to spoil it, but there's a surprise bit of casting in the mid-credits scene that again, okay. really. Really, the mid credits. You mean the the mid credits post credits? Yeah, <laughs> the the mid post mid mid credits post. There are two post credits scenes, post movie scenes. Yes, <laughs> one in the middle of the credits, one after. Exactly. So, um, so it's quite good. I think I liked it better than Homecoming, but that's just because I tend to like the sequels more. So okay, but still, overall, like uh, you know, uh, Marvel thumbs up, which is you know <laughs> with reservations. So. But you could do worse. Again, 
Marvel movies always tend to be entertaining regardless. So I just was hoping for more thematic richness, okay? <laughs> Where's Black Panther <laughs> 2? <laughs> exactly. I, we don't want to mistake these for art. This is commerce <laughs> we're talking about. Exactly. So, like, any any thematic resonance or, or any touching on any difficult subject, I think, is is appreciated. How about? Mm, okay. Yeah. That's a fair way to but, put it. But, yeah, I, I do want to, maybe, maybe we'll do this off mic and <laughs> delve into this, this fake news business here. Mm-hmm. Is this is this finally the, pro, the pro-Trump movie, John? <laughs> he, he says, that's his catchphrase, fake news. I like it when he says fake news. I mean, this is still very much in the... Uh, uh, pro-democracy camp because there's a character again going back to that surprise bit of casting there's a character who's meant to be a uh, alex jones stand-in and he's meant to be the buffoon so but you could also argue it's like well maybe you should have made it a little more of a critical uh interpretation of that instead of like just doing it wholesale but we'll we'll, we'll get into it we'll get into it off mic okay okay, yeah. okay all right well john i'm glad you brought that up because that plays into my recommendation oh, it's it's about the truth, bouncing damn it. bouncing off each other boom 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 exactly boom. it's like a game of squash this podcast yeah i know john according to imdb this is now the greatest television show to ever grace our screens oh my gosh what could it <laughs> yeah. possibly be game of thrones people finally realize game of thrones <laughs> brilliance <laughs> no that was that wasn't the top until until it became awful oh. until the show we liked is Bad. bad writing. It's bad writing. <laughs> bad writing. But Craig, how bad about some writing. good writing? Boo, piss. <laughs> but Craig, how about some good writing? What do you have to recommend that's yeah. good writing? Well, well, we'll get into the writing. John, let's it's ta- let's talk about Chernobyl, all right? Mm, haven't heard did of it. Know... What's Chernobyl? <laughs> well, John, did you Sounds know it's like based a Pokemon. On a true story? What is it? Yeah. Did you know, John, it's based on a true story? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So this is a I I, I, a dramatization of the famous explosion at reactor number four at the Chernobyl uh, nuclear facility mm-hmm. uh, near on the border of Ukraine and Belarus. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it uh, let out a it released a cloud of radioactive dust that affected hundreds of thousands of people still today. Okay, and so this is a dramatization of that, particularly the characters who investigated and want to seek the truth that's that's basically the whole theme is like let's get to the truth of this matter mm-hmm. and so i i think that's that's a problem Th- that was kind of my hesitation towards this because th- this is based on a true story so your dramatization has to be damn good <laughs> to beat the truth and there are a lot of points of this of this tv show that are like pretty damn good again produced by hbo have some top flight casts which i'll talk about later mm-hmm. But there's a lot of dramatization that that really kind of rubbed me the wrong way, especially when you're dealing with a with a real life events like this. Okay. Um, namely, this is inescapably a British production. <laughs> I believe in like the first 20 minutes, I heard like "bugger," and yes. I took the lift to hospital. And <laughs> when this is obviously supposed to be taking place in the Ukraine, I mean, but uh, Greg, if Hunt for October taught us anything, all Russians are secretly just Scottish actors. Like, come on! <laughs> I just naturally assumed all fair, Russians fair were point, really fair Brit- point. <laughs> when they talk in yeah. English, they sound British. <laughs> yes, or New Zealand, or a New Zealander in the case of Sam Neill. <laughs> okay, there you go. Oh, he's in it. Yeah. I know Jared no, Harris. No, in Hunt for Red October, oh, silly. Shit, fuck, sorry. Oh, I can't follow. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. John, we'll get back. We'll get back. Okay, we'll we'll right. get back to that rat that that dialogue that obviously people know us for. Okay. But. <laughs> anyway, back to Chernobyl. Yeah, some of that some of the uh the inescapable Britishness rubbing the wrong way, as did uh in the opening scene we follow a firefighter. So 
this is a sprawling story showing across five different episodes. It shows a sprawling story of all these different characters. And one of our main ones is a firefighter and his pregnant wife. And again, it would have been fine if we just followed the firefighter, but instead the uh, writer Craig Mazin, the series creator, had to throw in the dramatics like uh, when when the explosion erupts at 1.30 a.m. And the, it, the firefighter has to be like, oh, it's probably nothing. <laughs> like, let me just throw on and kiss my wife goodbye. <laughs> you know, I'll see, I'll see you in a few hours. This will be nothing. <laughs> you have nothing to worry about. And if, and if, and if that comes to pass, maybe we all horribly die of radiation somehow. Can't wait to come back and raise our kid together. Okay, bye. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's that sort of dramatic stuff. Thankfully, that scene is chased by like actual like emergency services call that's the only Mm. docudrama aspect of the of the whole show yeah but if there's a star of the show it's jared harris as as a real life uh, nuclear scientist charged with actually containing the radiation in the whole service and he's the one who realizes that not just the incompetence of the people actually running this nuclear facility but also the all the safety regulations that were ignored and he butts up against the soviet government that just refuses to acknowledge culpability or the truth Mm. in of the matter that's now affecting tens of thousands of lives and potentially the whole world because not just not just these performances by him and stellan skarsgård as his like government bureaucrat like uh, cohort Mm -hmm. Um, like he just perfectly cast as the as the gravelly gravelly voiced uh, Eastern European, <laughs> but also like all the complications that come from this. Like, well, it's, well, like how how the heck do we stop the release of radiation? Like, well, well, we can't like douse it with water. Like, we can't send anybody close to it. Like, oh, let's put a helicopter. Oh, the helicopter crashes. <laughs> like, you know, so from that from those like thrilling aspects, it worked. Like, oh no, it's melting down. How the hell do we like you know stop it from melting down? Well, we literally have to dig. Like, we literally have to recruit like hundreds of miners to actually dig beneath and contain the meltdown Mm -hmm. so it's very compelling from from that point of view so we can't go above it let's go under it that sounds safe yeah (laughs) (laughs) exactly so it it tries to show the whole societal impact with these characters including like there's only one episode devoted to uh they cast barry keow as this really green soldier Mm -hmm. who's um charged with containment animal containment so they have to go around to all these different villages and shoot every stray dog deer cat every animal that's been contaminated Mm -hmm. and again he's only there for one episode but i mean between between like casting him and the other actors like that all works really well Mm -hmm. and it finally culminates in this they save the best episode for laugh. They save the best episode for last, and it's this trial wherein uh, Jared Harris's character is, is faced with a decision: does he does he reveal the truth and then fall into disgrace, or God forbid, being sent to a gulag by his <laughs> by his Soviet superiors? <laughs> yeah, or or does he or does he hide it maybe for the protection of uh, just for the protection of the Soviet state, or you know maybe. Uh, uh, allaying the fears of people who um have to who had to be evacuated so again it's it's a pretty it's set up dramatically it's a pretty obvious choice uh, and Stellan Skarsgård's character does come around and um yeah spoiler, spoiler alert he does get a chance to reveal uh all the ways in which this Chernobyl disaster went wrong so okay. yeah so it's it's very good drama with my reservations with that they didn't need all the silly like dramatic stuff like in the firefighter like saying oh it's nothing <laughs> or well i mean actually it's funny because i was listening to a fresh air episode where they were talking yeah. with an author who wrote kind of i think 
I don't know if it was the book that they decided to base the series off of, but it's one of the, yeah. it's it's a book basically going through the whole Chernobyl disaster. And he does mention the fact that when that explosion happened, yeah, no one really freaked out because, again, they were so self-assured that, yeah, nothing could possibly go wrong. <laughs> Not even God could sink this ship. So I do think that that does have a place in truth, but you're right. Was that you know? Uh, I'm can't wait to come back and you know have a have a happy ending with my family. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, Don't worry, honey. I'm only two days from retirement. <laughs> yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Maybe maybe not overconfidence, but it, this this plays really well. It literally oh, the show like opens with the explosion, mm-hmm. and they're just in this control room, and they have no idea what's going on. Just sirens are going off, and like, th- yeah, they have no idea. So it's not just the overconfidence, but the fact that you can't see anything. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so, and and that just makes for a great dramatic revelation later when, in this trial, they do take you step-by-step through every event that leads up to this terrible disaster, so... Mm. I have been noticing, though, that like a lot of TV shows tend to do that nowadays, or at least these kind of like season-long, like contained story. This has just been happening a lot with like the true crime shows that I've been absorbing, like the uh, like uh, assassination of Johnny Versace and the Act, where it's like the last episode seems to be dedicated to like ah, here's how it finally played out. And for me, it's kind of a letdown because it's like, yeah, we already knew this. We already kind of figured this out. <laughs> <laughs> Like you were ratcheting well, up the tension, and I'm not getting enough of a release. But you know, oh, bad, bad choice of words, John. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's just because we know how to dramatize things, mm-hmm. or like we can't. We like again, we got to maintain that momentum, and as prestige television does, we have to get to episode nine or ten yeah. to keep you compelled week after week. And and I'd say Chernobyl does that. I mean, I was I was anticipating each episode. But yeah, with that kind of slight, those slight little niggles, like, you know, like the the overt Britishness of it, like not even not even trying to do, say, Ukrainian accents or get rid of your British vocabulary. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, blood it out your ass. <laughs> Oi, point. Oi. <laughs> get it out the boot of me car. <laughs> Oi, point of vodka. <laughs> Because they're Russian, you see. Yes. <laughs> well researched this show. Mm-hmm. Wow, Greg. Well, uh, and also, wow, Greg. I, I'm glad take. you mentioned that because you there were hot- a lot of <laughs> there were a lot of things that I could point out the de- the, the details of Russian culture. Oh. For instance, there's a character that very clearly has a has a wedding band on his right ring finger. Oh. That's a tradition in Russia, not the left Ooh. as we have in the West, but the right finger. Adi da. Yeah. Wow. And again, Greg with the hot takes. I like Chernobyl. Congratulations. So did yeah. 99% of America. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's... I, I want a reservation. IMDb, come on. This is not the greatest television show ever created. Why do you put any stock in their rating system? That is that is Mythbusters, okay? <laughs> that is the greatest TV show ever made. What about American Greed? You loved American Greed. Oh, that's right. Well, that's 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 top tier. I'll put that, I'll put that in the top 25. Okay. But. With the slight reservation that John, sometimes not everybody gets gets their just, uh, just desserts in the end. No. They do an episode on Jordan Belfort. He's still allowed to go free, and he hasn't played his he hasn't paid his debts to society yet. Oh dear! What the hell? Where's the episode about uh, uh, Epstein? What's his first name? <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, let's let's talk about that, <laughs> guys. Society's gonna collapse because <laughs> it turns out every person in power is a pedophile. <laughs> all linked to Jeff- Jeffrey Epstein and his Lolita Express plane. <laughs> Written on by Republicans and Democrats. Yay! Yeah. Everyone's a winner. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, love our government. Oh, love. Everybody wins. Yeah. Ugh. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, maybe Donnie Darko had it right. Maybe we should. Maybe we should just kill ourselves <laughs> for the greater yeah. good. Uh, but if you liked this last hour of entertainment of content, why don't you go yeah. to your podcast service of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, and give us five stars. That'll help other people find the show, and we'll help grow our audience, and we can build this aspiring snobs community together. Yes, yeah, so the positive feedback is what will keep us going. <laughs> yes. That's what we're really looking for, not sponsors. No, no, fuck that. Because how infuriating is that? Like, John, you hate going to the post office. <laughs> you will not hear any of that from us. You haven't heard it for 140 episodes, and you won't hear it for the next uh, uh, 25 or so. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine us trying to do an ad read with a straight face. We wouldn't be able to get through No. That. Come on, look at us. No. Are we professionals? Hell no. No. Are we capitalists? No. <laughs> no, not, not that either. We don't do anything for money. No, of course not. Because we came from, from means, so <laughs> we don't have to. It doesn't mean anything to us. Yeah. I wipe my ass with fives. <laughs> anyway. <Yeah. laughs> with fives, not hundreds. We're not monsters. No, we're not monsters. <laughs> I save those for my rides on the Lorita Express. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, hey, we're also on social media. Give us a follow on tw- Twitter, uh, a like on Facebook, uh, a follow on Instagram. Yes. John, you're doing a bang-up job with that Instagram feed. Oh, I am. Greg, content. We were skeptical, but you are making it work. Wait, what do you mean by we? Well, you said, like, what What visually are we going to do That's true. for an Instagram feed? That's true. I remember you saying that. I could check the tape. That is true. Because we are recording this on tape. <laughs> what, we're recording this? Holy shit. Yes. <laughs> you're right. You're right. But, you know, Instagram is fun. It is fun. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fun little engagement tool. I, 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 I hashtag something proud American, and I instantly got a comment from some Trump-supporting page, <laughs> which <laughs> I gave a kindly nope. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, we have fun. We have fun. Yes, we do. We'll also have fun next week. Yes. Because we got movies planned out months in advance. Well, weeks in advance. <laughs> just just all the weeks in advance. Yeah. And next week, with the summer drawing to a close, pretty much. I mean, come on. No, no one really thinks of August as a summer anymore, do they? Come on. No. It's too damn hot. Yes. Yeah, stay inside. I think we're going to go on another classic road trip, Greg. Let's go on an adventure together. Like like two adventurers, like uh, Han Solo and Chewbacca. Uh, uh, who, uh, give, give me some Thelma and Louise. Thelma and Louise, you know, classic duos. And I think yeah, who had uh, Doctor Gonzo <laughs> and Dunnerus Thompson, <laughs> Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, just all the classic duos. And we're gonna go be going. They race. They do not go on a road trip. Whatever. All right, that's Mickey's racers. <laughs> Get it right. Okay. But yes, we're gonna be racing across this great country of ours with our two favorite buddies, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, this is this is a revolutionary John, movie, John. You haven't seen it before. No, I've never seen it before. I know this ushered in a new era of filmmaking, and it's kind of apropos with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood coming out. We've also got that new uh, Queen and Slim movie coming out. Mm. Have you heard about that movie? What's, no, what's Queen and Slim? Uh, it's kind of like a it's like a racially tinged Bonnie and Clyde story. Uh, these two these two African Americans go on this date, but they accidentally end up killing a cop by the end of it, and they go on a run, and they kind of become folk heroes. It's got a. Uh, it's got the guy from uh, Ten Million Credits. Uh, uh, he was, <laughs> Samuel Jackson. No, <laughs> the the Black Mirror episode. He was in Get Out. Uh, he was in Black Panther. Oh, uh, Daniel Kalua. Kalu- yes, Kalua. Kalua. <laughs> Daniel Kalua. He makes a great Black Rush. <laughs> I apologize. Kalu- Kaluuya. Yeah. Now I don't look so bad with my Asian comments earlier. <laughs> Bring it full circle. 
Yes, a G. John, let's get out of here before we get disturbed. <laughs> we'll say any more racist things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next time. Pony and Clyde. Pony and Clyde. Un de ces quatre, nous tomberons ensemble. Moi, je m'en fous, c'est pour Bonnie que je tremble. Quelle importance qu'il me fasse la peau. Moi, Bonnie, je tremble pour Clyde Barrow. Bonnie and Clyde.